We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha and welcome to the Layman's Lounge podcast, which is a ministry of the laymanslounge.com, where we exist to bring everyday theology to encourage Christians for everyday life. I'm Jason, a Stopenol business process analyst and a YWAMer here in Kona, Hawaii. And all the other line is Dr. J.V. Fesco. Aloha, Dr. Fesco. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do winners in Rome and say aloha back. It's good to be with you. <laughs> well received. Dr. Fesco is, as I'm sure many of you are aware, he's professor of systematic and historical theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi and a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, OPC. He is the author um, and contributor of a bunch of articles and essays. And I'm just going to highlight a few here. One is Death in Adam, Life in Christ, the Doctrine of Imputation. Um, that's, that's really important. Let me just say, anyways. Um, next one, The Theology of the Westminster Standards, historical context and theological insights. And then also what we'll be discussing here today, a book just released a few weeks ago. The book is quote, or the book is the need for creeds today, confessional faith in a faithless age. Um, and that's Baker academic 2020. And, and before I forget and jump in, we're going to be giving away two copies of the book. Thanks to the saints over at Baker academic. So yeah, two copies of the Needs for Creeds today, Confessional Faith and a Faithless Age. Just go to the Layman's Lounge, Facebook or Instagram and enter there. Okay, so um, I, Dr. Fesco, I didn't grow up confessional. Mm -hmm. I think if you would ask me, I think, oh, confessions, oh, those are Catholic, right? That's probably my first thought. Yeah. Um, in fact, when I introduced them at a previous church I was working at, I had some serious pushback. They're like, mm -hmm this is Catholic. Are we Catholics? <laughs> so anyways, that was my default assumption and it's still prevalent at the most recent church I was at. Anyways, so there, now having said that, there really seems to be a culture for the confessionally reformed. So just so the, the listener can hear, we're calling anyone who adheres to, you know, um, one or some of the confessions, we call them confessional. And then to be confessional, usually by definition, you are reformed if it's one of these confessional reform. I mean, you could you could patch that up if you like. So, <laughs> sort of these confessionally reformed folks. Um, so there really seems to be a culture there. And my question for you is, um, I, I'm like I'm a little bit intimidated by the culture. Mm -hmm. That's just okay. full on. I'm a little bit intimidated, mm -hmm. and I'm not throwing the bath the baby out with the bathwater. But sometimes I kind of feel like and and. I know you that you're steeped in this. So if you could speak to it, I feel like I remember when I first became a Calvinist, which and what I mean by Calvinist is like my understanding of the sovereignty of God. And that's it. That's what mm -hmm. I thought Calvinism was. Mm -hmm. I thought I was, you know, whatever. And so I became cage staged. It's like, oh, you're not, you're not, you know, I call myself reformed, but I say, you're not reformed. Oh, yeah. you know, you need to read your Bible. You need to learn about it. Um, so I was cage stage, but what I've noticed now, you know, I humbly submit to you, I'd love for you to speak to it is I feel like there's an acceptable 
cage stage about mm-hmm. confessionalism. It's like, don't be cage stage, we mock that, but there's almost like a, again, it's, I'm new to the, I'm, I'm, you know, I didn't grow up with this, a, a gentleman's club vibe. So I don't know, have you seen that? Can you speak to it all? Is it just me? Like, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think that, you know, whenever, if we, we can back into this question step by step by saying, first of all, that I would say that it's, it's you know, confessional reform theology is in a sense like most subcultures that you're going to find in, it can be in any kind of culture, it can be in any kind of discipline. It's like when I lived in California, I had a colleague who invited me to go out surfing and I had never been surfing before, picked it up, really enjoyed it. But one of the things that I had to learn was there's there's a surf culture, you know, I had to learn terms like, you know, here's the stringer, here's the rails, you know, here's the fin, you know, these are breaking outside, these are breaking inside, mm-hmm. you know, there's a there's a, a an offshore breeze, you know, and, and what have you. So there's there's a there's there's that kind of the terminology that's associated with surfing that I kind of had to learn. And in fact, I remember getting a homework assignment from my friend to go. I cannot remember the name of the movie, but it's like a classic surfing movie uh, documentary where these guys are going around the world to these different surf spots. And so, you know, I I was becoming enculturated in that kind of, uh, that community. But then at the same time, as I would talk to different guys, I would find out to say, well, uh, there's good, there's, there's good surfing etiquette. Never, you know, never cut somebody off when you're, you know, getting ready to, to try to catch a wave, make sure there's nobody that's Watch it, cook. It. Yeah. And then you find out, well, don't go surfing down there because those guys are really, really defensive. They don't want to let any outsiders in, you know, and in fact, they, you, they might actually, you know, rush, run you off, <laughs> you know, might even get physical or something like that. So it's like, okay, that's good to know. You know, so that being said, as we take that metaphor and we, we move it into the, the confessional church, yeah, there's a sense in which at first it might seem a little intimidating because, you know, you've, 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 you've made a profession of faith. You, you know what your Bible is all about in the sense that it's the word of God and you appreciate that. But at the same time, then you find out, wait a minute, there are these other documents and and uh, what's all of this terminology in these documents and, and what are all these doctrines and what are they talking about? And then you find that there's some people that, that take these documents so seriously that it's kind of like surfing at those exclusive, you know, locations. It's like, be careful, because if you try to come in, they're liable to, to, to try to run you off. But on the <laughs> other hand, you find that, hey, you know, if you go over here, these guys over here, they're friendly. They want to teach you. They want wow. to, you know, rope you in. They want to, you know, explain things to you. So in every community, there's always going to be a wide range of, of folks, some that are more uptight, others that are looser, and some that are, you know, right in, in between. And so that's what I would encourage folks to do is that, you know, it, confessions are so great. And I think the culture of it is so great for a couple of reasons. One is that um, it reminds us that, uh, of the important truth that the Christian faith is much bigger than us personally. Yeah. Um, as, as, as important as it is for us individually to embrace the gospel, we always want to remember that we're, we are saved as individuals to be a part of a body, the mm-hmm. church, and that that church is not only the people that are living and existing that we see on a regular basis, but it's a church that extends throughout the ages and the way that we can converse with the church throughout the ages is by picking up these ancient documents 
you know, such as the Westminster Confession of Faith written in 1647. And then that document itself also stretches back to the earliest days of the church in the fourth and fifth centuries as it's pulling phrases and statements and teachings from the early church. So it's a way for us to, to join hands with our ancestors from the past to borrow the line from the book of Jude so that we can profess the faith once delivered to the saints. And so it's, it's, it's a way of just kind of, it's kind of like a, a family reunion, you know, you're getting everybody together to say, hey, this is what we're all about and, and we're going to, to rally around Christ. And yeah, there's going to be some folks that they, uh, you know, they take these documents and give them too much importance. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, they almost seemingly uh, give them an equal authority with scripture. Uh, but a solid confessional uh, reformed, uh, you know, type will always say, no, these documents are important, but they always take a back seat to the primary authority of scripture. Uh, and like the Westminster Confession of Faith, that's the document of my denomination. You know, it's, uh, in it, it itself says that, you know, that scripture is uh, our only rule in faith and life. Uh, and so that, that, that's, that's crucial. So hopefully that kind of maybe, you know, answers that question and, and sets, the, uh, sets the, the big picture, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, I, I don't remember reading um, that parallel with surfing in the book. <laughs> but man, did you just tell me, did you make that up on the spot or did you have that one in, in the toolbox? That was good. No, just uh, kind of, I, I, I'm a huge guy on analogies and because um, I find that that's the way that I learned the best. And right. I, I think, well, what's something else where we find this pattern somewhere else in life? So that's, uh, that's right. one I, I've used, I've used it on an occasion here or there, but it did just come to mind. I thought, oh, this might be a good connection to make, especially that you're in Hawaii. Hopefully yeah. it's suitable for some of the folks that'll be listening. Totally. So keeping like keeping in the realm of an analogy mm -hmm. so i'm from i'm from southern california like near right right near where i used to work mm -hmm. um and my wife is too and my wife grew up a los angeles dodgers fan and mm -hmm. i grew up actually i didn't even grow up a dodge an angels fan i mm -hmm. became an angels fan like a total johnny come lately when they won the world <laughs> series in 2001 uh -huh. so you could, you could probably even guess where I'm going with that. She grew up a Dodgers fan and everyone knows, like if we're being honest, even the Angels fans know the Dodgers are way cooler than the Angels. They've been, I mean, they've been around from like the 1800s. Yeah. Their name Dodgers comes because they were like originally in Brooklyn and they were trolley car Dodgers when they were trolley cars. And the Angels are like the Los Angeles Angels, but they're not even from LA. It's like... It's a little bit embarrassing, but but we have Mike Trout. Okay, so all the, and she always makes fun of me and I would never say it, but she is cooler than me because she's a <laughs> Dodger fan. The Dodgers are cooler. Now, okay. having said that, probably most of our listeners are young, restless, reformed, Baptistic. <laughs> so if they even are confessional, they are adhering to, you know, the London Baptist Confession, you know, I think it's like 1689 or whatever. Yeah, that's right. Um, which is almost, I mean, you could speak to it, but I looked at the side by side of the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist, and they're they're very, 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 very similar. You know, <laughs> um, you know, the the Baptist one was clearly pulled like intentionally, and mm -hmm. you know, just a few modifications, but like the one of the main ones being baptism. So, <laughs> hit me with this. Is the Baptist Convention 
or uh, confession. Is that the Los Angeles Angels? <laughs> and the Westminster Standards or the three forms of unity, are those the Dodgers? Yeah. No, that's, that's a good question. And I think that what I would want to do is for a better comparison, it might be something like more contemporary that would be the equivalent of the uh, of the angels if, if we're going with that analogy but that what happened and this is one of I think one of the inherent implicit benefits in 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 kind of embracing these documents as useful instruments uh, to help us along the way both in our individual as well as our churchly life is that uh, the Baptists that had gathered in 1689 uh, to write their own confession of faith, they, they have this, this statement that I quote in the book that they didn't want to clog the church with newfangled words and opinions is what they say. And so they wanted to basically say, hey, we agree with the, 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 the folks at Westminster so much that basically we're just going to take their entire document and we're going to more or less copy it, you know, over section by section. Yes, there are some key differences, and I don't want to minimize those differences, but I want to say that there's, I don't know what the percentage is, I, I, I'm not good at math, so I, but I would guess that it's something like 90% plus in agreement in terms of, uh, of the overall, you know, similarity and, and uh, continuity of doctrinal conviction, and that I think is so important because often in the case of the church, what, what, what we don't know is how much we actually have in common with one another. And while I don't want us to, to diminish doctrinal differences, because obviously all of us believe uh, in what we uh, understand to be the truth and we want to advocate that, at the same time, the, the, the trenches of the battle lines between, you know, uh, conservative Christians and the broader, let's say, liberal church and or beyond in, in the culture in which we find ourselves, those battle lines are getting smaller and smaller in the sense that we don't have a lot of allies, you know, in, in this battle yeah. against the unbelieving culture. And so I, I, I would rather say, hey, we might worship at different churches on Sunday, but we agree on so much that we can look to one another, we can pray for one another, uh, we can recognize one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, even if we have these differences. Uh, and so we can have that outward facing look towards the world to engage it for Christ without having to worry so much about what's behind us because we know what the, the doctrinal convictions are of our brothers and sisters because they, they, they embrace something like the Second London Confession uh, or the Westminster Standards or the Three Forms of Unity where there is so much doctrinal agreement. So I think that that's, that's, that's really important. So I wouldn't say that the Second London is the, um, you know, uh, the, the, the angels. They're, they're, they've got a much richer, older heritage uh, than that. So, uh, uh, so that, that, that's, that's how I'd answer with that one, yeah. So by way of follow-up, like you are a member of the OPC, um, which is the, the Westminster Standards. Mm -hmm. if, if, a, if someone who was like almost jot and tittle in agreement with you, you know, and they were, um, you know, the, the second London Baptist Confession or whatever, if they were to say like you wouldn't allow them to be a minister in a church, even though it was so close, but because of prop like the baptism thing. Yeah. So, and 
the reason I'm even bringing this up is because this is something that's really talked about. I'm just curious to hear your talk and maybe you can hit these two things. Um, people, you know, a lot of the, the, the guys who, you know, the guys and gals who are confessional with, you know, with the Westminster standards and three forms of unity, they are, they would say, yeah, we are reformed sort of capital R reform, if you will. And some would say, yeah, those other guys, even if they're confessional, but it's London, London Baptist Convention, they are not reformed, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe they're a little are reformed or whatever. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it hinges on, on, I don't know, but like that sort of the bap, sort of the baptism thing. So my question for you is like, that is, um, there's all, there's so much overlap, right? Like so, so much, except for that baptism thing, mm-hmm. but it is enough it, it, it kind of seems like, and this is the, you know, the Baptist that I grew up in coming out in me, it kind of mm-hmm. seems like a little extreme to have that one, you know, that one mm-hmm. sort of subject be one that, that would, um, I mean, I guess in church, it makes sense because who you're literally going to baptize or not, it's everywhere, mm-hmm. but almost even just to maybe work at an institution together or something. I don't know. Can you, can you kind of speak to that? And that's the last question. That's sort of the, that whole realm of culture and nitpicky and whatever yeah that's totally fine you know i i think on the one hand we want to recognize that while there is so much overlap and an agreement say between a reformed baptist and uh you know a presbyterian you know with westminster standards at the same time you know i while i don't agree say with my reformed baptist brothers on the issue of, of baptism and so that may, you know, distinguish us and put us in different churches on a Sunday morning or in different denominations. I want to have the 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 um, the respect for them from the vantage point to say that, you know, as Paul says, whatever is not of faith is sin. And so, if they're convicted that hey, this is this is this is not the way to go about it. It has to be, you know, we have to go about it this way. Then I want to respect that, and I want to say, okay, you know, I want to I want to respect your your conscious. Uh, your conscience and and your doctrinal convictions, and so that's why it's so important for us, I think, to recognize those 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 things. Uh, along those lines, uh, you know, that's where I I'm I'm fully aware of the fact. I, I remember discussing this in a Sunday school class once with some some Reformed Baptist types, and I want to say, look, just so long as we understand each other, that one of us is sinning. We we both can't be right. Um, and uh, you know, or we both can't be wrong either. Either you baptize the infant or you don't. You know, but that being said, that doesn't mean that we have to throw rocks at each other. We can mm. have a principal doctrinal disagreement, but nevertheless, respect one another, pray for one another, and even work together. And so that may put us in different ecclesiastical settings, mm. you know, so that, that's, that would be the first phase of that question. But as far as the second phase is concerned, I've got a, I've got a good, uh, you know, a good colleague, a former colleague who wants to make that distinction, and he wants to say that, yeah, Reformed Baptists aren't Reformed, because if you look at all of the 16th century, you know, and 17th century confessions, the Reform, uh, the, you know, the Reformed confessions, all, you know, virtually each individual document all affirm uh, the importance and, and biblical validity of infant baptism. Now, if we're talking history, if we're talking church history, um, then I'm going to be really specific, because when, if I'm doing history, then I'm going to call Reformed Baptists, I'm going to call them particular Baptists, 
because that's what they were called in the 17th century. Mm -hmm. And so I just am not going to be accurate. But if we're talking about, you know, the current contemporary situation, um, I don't have a problem as much as my former colleague may want to, you know, to quibble, I don't have a problem with calling folks Reformed Baptists if that's their preferred term, mm. you know, for two reasons. One, because there is so much doctrinal agreement. Uh, secondly, um, you know, the, the, the Second London Confession is more or less, you know, 90% of it is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Yeah. Uh, Third, there's the qualifier there. You know, the Reformed Baptist folks are not claiming to be Reformed full stop. They're saying very explicitly, we're Reformed Baptists. Yeah. And so they want that distinctive oh. to be known up front. They're not trying to get in underneath the radar or something like that to where they're trying to deceive anybody at all. So I think it's fine to call them Reformed Baptists. I don't personally have any objection to it, whether personally nor do I necessarily think that there's a, 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 you know, I don't find the arguments to not call them reformed persuasive, you know, myself, mm. you know, so I'm reformed, they're reformed Baptist, great, let's, you know, mm. let's, you know, let's work together, and in fact, I have a lot of friends that are reformed Baptists, and I, you know, communicate with them regularly, in fact, um, I was just reading over a manuscript today that uh, a colleague of mine are considering including in a series that we edit, and it's written by a Reformed Baptist, mm. uh, and it's really rock-solid work. And so, oh. um, you know, I, I want to say, hey, let's, you know, while there may be a proper place and time to, de to debate and to mm. discuss our differences, you know, because there is so much that we agree upon, I want to say, hey, let me look for every opportunity that yeah. I can for the both of us to promote those areas where we do agree uh, so that, uh, you know, we can advance the cause yeah. of the Reformed faith. So, you know, that, that's where I would, you know, put that sure. all of that. For the listener, I'm going to post uh, on the show notes, I'm going to post two things. I'm going to post the, there's a side-by-side um, a -side, uh, sort of comparison of the changes um, of the, you know, the West, uh, I think, I think it's shorter catechism, I forget, but, or no, the confession mm -hmm. for, between the Baptists and um, the Westminster. So I'll post that up. And the other thing is for the listener who's actually very curious about that super nuanced thing, what is reformed, what is not. I think I remember reading a book and you're probably talking about, but where it was like a chapter from R. Scott Clark and then a chapter from a reformed guy who was okay with calling them Baptist reform. It was a really, really compelling book. I don't remember what it's called. Um, it may be edited by Crawford Gribben, I think. And yeah. Maybe Scott Clark. And I don't remember who the publisher is, but it was published maybe uh, maybe 18 months ago, something like that, relatively recently. So, yeah, that would probably be the discussion Post to read up. up on. Yeah. All right, let me hit you with this one. Unite the clans. Unite <laughs> the... Okay. Do you... That's, you know, a little brave heart. Yes, no, that's a fantastic, uh, that's some of the best historical fiction on film out there, so yeah. Except for when they're running and you see the rubber sword, like, yeah. like it's bounce, it's swaying in the wind. Anyways, yeah. unite the clans, and it makes me think, oh man, I'm, we're, about to, we're about to hit almost hallowed ground, if you will, right? <laughs> if you were back there, you know, mm -hmm. at the assembly of the divines, mm -hmm. you know, would you be like, hey, you guys, let's, um, I don't know what, you know, where it is on the baptism bit, but would you say, let's, um, 
let's let this one have let's kind of let this one go either way understanding you could say it doesn't mean you think Mm -hmm. the other side is okay but for the sake of you know whatever would that have united the clans in a sense you know i don't think so i mean obviously i could be wrong you know uh i remember looking at a book and i've never watched the show i just heard of it but you know uh man in the high castle i think Mm. you know where it says what if what if the germans had won so you know, you ask these kinds of questions, what if, you know, the what ifs questions. And so it, it is a little bit difficult, but what it, what's difficult for us, I think, is that when we look at historical uh, events and documents and stuff, I think our natural inclination is to try to bring those people and those documents into the present, rather than instead saying that what we have to do is we have to transport ourselves into the past Wow. and try to forget everything that we know and everything that we've experienced and put ourselves into the shoes of a 17th century person. And so this is where, you know, you had these guys just adamantly convinced that this is, this is God's truth. This is, you know, we can't compromise on this. We have to, we have to hold the line. And so I don't see them doing that where you do see some wiggle room. It's, arguably not as much as we would want to see perhaps from some quarters, but uh, they originally took one vote on the modes of baptism. And um, I think the other modes were excluded by one vote. It was like 25 to 24. Then they came back and had some more debate and the votes flipped and it went 24, 25 to include all three modes. Mm. Um, And so, but you know, they, they, they include the line that says, um, you know, uh, you know, what is it? Um, uh, that, uh, sprinkling is, is the right way to do it, but that these other modes are not necessary, but it doesn't condemn the other modes. Mm, it just simply says they're not necessary to the right administration. So that in one sense is, is, it's a, con- is a concession. Mm. Uh, but that being said, you know, that's where I would say that at least given the way that denominations and churches are aligned right now, um, I think that a, a good number of our of my Reformed Baptist friends wouldn't want to go down that route, uh, just because they they this is is this is a really important aspect of their ecclesiology. And in a sense, while there is some ninety percent or whatever it is agreement between the two bodies, the two documents, I don't want to minimize the differences in those in those in those ten percent. There are some key theological differences, for example, in the way that Reformed Baptists understand the covenants uh, versus the way that, you know, historic Presbyterianism understands them, mm-hmm. uh, and particularly where the gospel sits and where it comes forth in the Old Testament and under what ways. So there are some key hermeneutical differences. Uh, and so while as much as I want to get along with my Reformed Baptist brothers as I can, and I, I feel like in my own life I've, 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 I've uh, walked the talk on that one. Mm-hmm. In fact, you'll notice, if you notice in the preface to the book, that the book originated as lectures given to two different Baptist conferences. <laughs> you know, so I, I love working with my Baptist brothers, but I would say that on those issues, it's not just the baptism question, but it's also the underlying 
understanding and hermeneutical differences on understanding the covenants. And those are kind of like the anchor issue uh, that would, I think, distinguish the two bodies as much agreement as there is between them. Sure. And I don't see either group saying, okay, let's just, you know, now, yeah. you know, get along. Now, that being said, I have admitted, uh, we've admitted Reformed Baptists. When I was a pastor, we admitted Reformed Baptists into our to church, you know, as, as members. Um, we couldn't admit their children because they didn't want to have their children received as, uh, you know, through, through infant baptism. But we respected that, and we said, okay, that's fine, just so long as you don't try to, you know, stir up, you know, controversy. Yeah. And if I were in a situation where uh, I was in a community where I couldn't find a church, a good, solid Presbyterian church, but there's a solid Reformed Baptist congregation— you know, I could see myself attending and under the right circumstances, even potentially joining that church, mm. you know, so uh, just because there are those significant differences doesn't mean, you know, to borrow the phrase, near the twain shall meet. And, you know, as the children hymn goes, you and your small corner and I and mine. Uh, so there are circumstances and situations in which we could, you know, sure. work together in spite of whatever confessional and theological differences of opinion we might have. But I don't think I would have been able to, or for that matter, anybody else there would have been able to, to unite the clans, so to speak, at that particular point. So, All right. Thank you. So in, the, in the introduction of the book, you speak to early American Christians who, quote, wanted to peel back the layers of accumulated dogma and return Christianity to what they believed was the purest, most primitive form. And I'm just going to read that again. Um, this is sort of like early American idea on sort of rejecting, you know, the confessions or whatever. They wanted to peel back the layers of accumulated dogma and return Christianity to what they believe was its purest and most primitive form, end quote. So mm -hmm. this actually, I love that you quoted that. It actually seems like a really noble desire. Mm -hmm. So in what way was this hunger for an unmitigated biblically derived christianity as they would call it right mm -hmm. that espouses no creed but the bible H how where did they take a step in a wrong direction in that yeah you know i think that what happens is that in the world in which we lived we always have to ask the question to what degree am i being influenced by the world and the culture around me and how is it shaping my understanding of the gospel and of the scriptures and if you look at the you know colonial and american culture you know in in the early founding of our nation um, you know there's a sense in which we were hewing out of nation out of the wilderness you know we land on the shores of of north america you know, and we start creating a culture, a society, you know, we're, you know, clearing trees. And so there's that kind of, you know, uh, you know, nation building going on. You know, there's the untamed, you know, so-called Wild West. You know, there's a second thing that, that that's there is that you have uh, a, a number of disaffected Protestants who have left the old world and are looking for freedom uh, and uh, so they want to, they're looking for religious freedom and they want to come here to the shores of this country so that they can have, ex you know, religious freedom. Uh, a third factor is, is that, say, with the, uh, you know, imposition of authority through, say, you know, King George, uh, 
and British rule, there was an effort to throw off those authorities because of perceived excesses. Uh, you know, there's a sense in which you see this playing out right now in the press with, you know, people objecting and even suing governments and what have you over perceived overreaches of, you know, government authority. And so, uh, you know, you take those factors and then you combine it with other theological factors, uh, such as the fact that you don't have, you don't have churches, for example, that have access to large theological libraries, because again, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a rural kind of setting. You have uh, things like the, the Great Awakening, where people are having these personal experiences that are unlike the old religion, uh, the old world religion of, of, of Europe. And so you combine all of these factors together and basically they say, you know what, we want to kind of start afresh. Uh, you know, just as this country declared its independence from, you know, the, the rule of, uh, of King George, well, we want to declare our independence from, uh, you know, the old world and the old ways of doing things, and we want to cut a fresh path for ourselves. Now, there's a huge difference, and this is where I would make the distinction. It's one thing to say, I need to learn the truths of Christianity afresh for myself, it's like my grandfather used to say, you can't give it away if you don't own it. So you have to own those truths for yourself versus I'm going to ignore everything that's gone before and I'm going to essentially create my own understanding of the Bible. Uh, those two may look similar in certain ways at, at certain places, but they really are heading in two different directions. The mm -hmm. one says, look at me. It's all about me and what I think. The other says, I need to, to embrace this, but I need to read the Bible in the context of the church. You know, it, it's like you see this, the, 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 church, or the, the Bible is a covenantal document, and that means that it was never intended to be read isolated alone where it's me by myself. It's always to be read within the context of the body. And so this is why, you know, there's a sense in which the confessional impulse rubs against the grain of American Western Christianity uh, is because we're fighting against those, 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 those cultural experiences and those formative historical events that have, in a sense, shaped us not only as a nation, but has even shaped us as a collective group of people as Christians mm -hmm. within the church. So given the fact that the confessions have largely fallen into disuse um, North America here, you know, especially early on, where, where are we seeing or have we seen it take its toll on us, in, you know, sort of in the worst possible manner? Yeah, I think that as of late, for example, with the, the recent uh, uh, debates, even within evangelical Christendom, where you have uh, well-known evangelical theologians who have, in a sense, set aside the classic teaching on the doctrine of God, uh, and they have been promoting what is essentially, um, at a minimum, it's a it's a it's a problematic doctrine of God. Uh, you know, saying that in some respects God changes, and they set aside the doctrine of immutability or that the fact that God does not change, um, or for example, there have been more recent discussions in the last couple of years about what's called the eternal generation of the Son. Is the Son of God always the Son of God? Is the Father eternally the Father? And, and how do we understand the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? 
And it's like when we, when, when somebody sets aside, say, the historic teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity, which comes to us historically from the ecumenical creeds and councils, the Council of Nicaea in 325, the Council of Constantinople in 381, the Council of Ephesus in 431, the Council of Chalcedon in 451. When you take those, those key teachings and you set them aside, uh, I, I warn my students, you're not just disagreeing with one part of the, of the church. You're not just disagreeing with the, the Reformed branch or the Lutheran branch. Uh, you're disagreeing with all of Christendom on That's how you know it has de defined. We're talking Eastern Orthodox, we're talking Roman Catholic, we're talking wow. Protestant, we're talking Reformed, we're talking Anglican. And you see a unanimity on those mm -hmm. teachings within the church at, you know, with the entire, anybody that claims to be a church or a, a, a Christian in that sense. And so I say, when you set those teachings aside, you should do so in, with fear and trembling uh, to, to, to be ultra sure that you are not, uh, you know, walking maybe blindly into false teaching, uh, because these are truths and teachings that are not only uh, derived from the scriptures themselves, that they are founded upon the scriptures, but they've been hammered upon the anvil of of uh, doctrinal controversy and from assaults from false teaching virtually on every side. And so that's why it's so important for us to know these documents, to know that the Second London Confession or the Westminster Confession draw upon the very language of Chalcedon and Nicaea and Constantinople to show that we are not sectarians, some little offshoot, but rather we're a part of the one true church that has professed this faith, uh, you know, the Christian faith since the very beginning. That's super helpful. So we say, okay, confessions are good. You know, the, um, the catechisms are good. Um, the synods are good. But if you're a person who is, who's in the Bible and they're in the word, they're engaging in it, they're reading it, they're meditating, they're praying. Um, won't they like naturally end up where the authors of the confessions end up? Um, yes and no. I mean, in the sense that there's a sense in which we want to say that the, the, the teaching of the confessions essentially are taking the plain teaching of the scripture and they're simply codifying it. They're recording it for future generations, not only for the generation that exists during the writing of the document, but for future generations to come. They've got a long view of things. But on the other hand, as the Westminster Confession says, or even the Apostle Peter admits this, Peter says that there are some things in Paul's writing that are difficult to understand. That's a good and point. And so, <laughs> same thing with the confession. The confession says that while scripture is eminently clear, there are some parts that are more difficult to understand than others. Mm -hmm. And so, if this is the case, then say, for example, whether we go back to my surfing illustration, uh, you know, or even a baseball illustration, if you get into a new community, uh, whatever it is that they happen to be doing, you want somebody who knows the community, who knows the discipline, whatever it is that you're wanting to learn to teach you. You know, so I had some friends that were some pretty good teachers, uh, you know, to teach me how to surf. Now, that being said, I can't claim to be a great surfer, but I, <laughs> I started spending more time on top of the board than under it. So I feel like I had a, a modest degree of success. Uh, but, and, and, and so if we take that seriously, 
that there are other people out there that know things better than we do and that can teach us these things, say, in something as simple as baseball or surfing or, or reading or, you know, whatever the case may be, then that should apply in terms of understanding and, and studying the Bible. But more specifically and scripturally, we would want to say that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 says that in the wake of Christ's ascension, he has given gifts to the church through the outpouring of the Spirit, and that some of those gifts are teachers and pastors. And so that means that God, Christ, uh, through the Spirit, has gifted the church with teachers and pastors to lead us uh, in the truth, to teach us the Word of God when it is difficult for us to understand. And I would say to expand upon that, it's not just the teachers and the pastors that are walking around living right now as much of a blessing as they can be, but it's teachers throughout the entire history of the church. Wow. So if I've got a question, I shouldn't presume that I'm the first one to have this question or that I'm the only one that can answer it. I should have the humility to say, let me sit at the feet of some of the greatest minds that Christ has blessed the church with and let me learn from them uh, because they have a lot to teach me. And conversely, I have a lot to learn. What are some of the most, um, what are some of just the most important confessions and catechisms and synods or creeds that, that are out there? What, like for those who don't really know that, you know, they probably heard, yeah. Which would you say are some ones that we should sort of be aware of? Can you give us a little snapshot on them? Yeah, you know, as I mentioned, the ecumenical creeds are very important in this respect. You know, you would want to take the Nicene Creed as being uh, foundational and fundamental to understanding the person and work of Christ. Uh, along those lines, the Council of Chalcedon, or it's otherwise known as the Chalcedonian definition, which is in a sense, it's a commentary, if you will, upon the Nicene Creed. Those two documents, I think, are, are so important. In addition to that, you could take a number of 16th century uh, Reformation era creeds, uh, such as the Second Helvetic Confession was written by theologian by the name of Heinrich Bullinger. It was at one time one of the most used confessions in Europe. To this day, the Reformed Church of Hungary still uses that particular confession of faith. Um, you have these uh, three particular confessional documents that are uh, the Heidelberg Catechism written in 1563, the Belgic Confession written in 1561, and the Canons of Dort written in 1618 and 19. Those three documents together comprise what's known as the three forms of unity, and they are the common doctrinal standards for churches that come out of the continental reform tradition. Uh, those essentially, you know, coming from the Dutch or at least the European continent, uh, sometimes Switzerland, uh, sometimes France, um, uh, or Belgium, for example. Then, of course, you have the Westminster Standards, which is the confession, the larger and the shorter catechism. Those are the Presbyterian uh, documents related to that. We've mentioned this already, the Second London Confession. That would be the particular Baptist or the Reformed Baptist version of the Westminster Confession of Faith. On the Lutheran side, for example, you have the Book of Concord, uh, which contains uh, the Augsburg Confession written by Luke Martin Luther and uh, Philip Melanchthon, you know, the, the small catechism of Luther, uh, the uh, Formula Concord, which was a document that united the different Lutheran factions together. Um, 
Then in the Church of England, you've got the 39 Articles, for example. That's another important document. That's just a sampling of some of the, the key yeah. confessional documents uh, that are out there. And, uh, you know, they all are, are really important, and they're a wealth and resource of knowledge for helping us to understand uh, what the Bible teaches uh, on the, the entire breadth, if you will, of doctrine from creation uh, to the end, uh, uh, you know, to the end or to the consummation. So earlier I saw your son walk up the stairs, look like he's coming home from school, he had his backpack on. I don't know, he looked like he's, I don't know, 14 or 15 or something yeah, like that. 13 years old, yeah. So where, like in your own life, like as a father, as a neighbor, as a, as a, you know, as a busy dad, as a, you probably take your kids to football or soccer, you, you probably enjoy, you know, you enjoy surfing, like, so kind of out of the theological realm, mm -hmm. if you will, you know what I mean? Like we're talking the day-to-day -day life, not to say it's not like mm -hmm. just yeah. your normal living, right? Mm -hmm. Where where do you see the confessions at their best pulled down in your life, your son's life and yeah. whatnot? You know, one of the things I try to do on a regular basis is in the morning uh, at, at breakfast, we eat breakfast together as a family and I will read a chapter of scripture to my family every day. We've gone through the whole Bible once already, just reading a chapter a day, six days a week. And it took us about three and a half years we're about two thirds done for our second go through through the Bible. Mm. And my goal is, is, you know, at least with the, the, the all three kids to be able to tell them that while you were under our roof, I read the Bible out loud to you five times. Uh, you know, you heard it five times at least, or at least close to that. But secondly, what we try to do in the evenings is I get the, uh, the shorter catechism for my older kids uh, or the children's catechism, the children's catechism, you can find it online. It's a simplified version of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, and it's for uh, little kids, uh, say, you know, I don't know, five, six, seven years old in that kind of age range. And so we'll go over different catechism questions uh, with them, you know, in the evening. And so I'll ask them a question and then I'll tell them, here's the answer. And I want you to try to mem memorize this answer. You know, so my daughter, she sits down and she reads through and then I'll, I'll quiz her and I'll ask her these questions, you know, from an entire page so I can quiz her. I can give it to her for five minutes and then come back five minutes later and she'll know all of the answers to an entire page of questions, mm. you know, and it'll be five, four, five, six questions. Mm. And then what we try to do is I try to explain what, what the questions mean so ensure that they not only can, you know, give me the answers back, but that they can also... Um, uh, so that they can also uh, uh, understand what it is that they're saying and that they're not just merely parroting something back, but that mm -hmm. they truly understand it. And my hope and prayer is, is that between that scripture in the morning, catechism in the evening, and don't get me wrong, we have our days where we can't get to it. It's just, you know, it's just crazy. Everybody's busy. Everybody's ru running hither, thither, and yon. Uh, so we, you know, but we do our best to do, do that as, as regularly as we can. Um God willing, that's setting them up for the rest of their life so that, you know, th they'll remember these things, you know, you know, long into the, 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 uh, the twilight of their lives. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, God forbid that they are, you know, in a foxhole somewhere and they might remember these things or, yeah. you know, when they themselves are hopefully God willing, passing these truths on to their children, mm -hmm. you know, to, and to their children's children, uh, it will have begun many years before just taking, five minutes at dinner and five minutes at breakfast uh, 
yeah. uh, to do it. You know, it's like slow and steady, slow and steady. You don't try to bite off, you know, more than you can chew, mm. just a little bit at a time. And and I liken it to eating the elephant. Before you know it, you turn around and you're like, holy cow, look, the elephant's gone. <laughs> um, you know, it's like I, I run... I run three miles a day, usually four days a week. And I looked at my app the other day and I had logged more than 5,000 miles. And I thought, gee whiz, <laughs> wow, I, I, that, I, I didn't realize I had run that much. And it's just eating the elephant, you know, one, one step at a time or the thousand mile journey begins with a step. And so that's what I would encourage folks to do is take this stuff in bite-sized chunks and just start working on it, you know, one piece at a time. And before you know it, you'll have, uh, you'll have consumed the elephant. And let the listener know, Dr. Fesco is ripped. He does run that. You can tell he you can tell he does some push-ups on the side. Good for you. Um, so is the best case scenario though, like there is there there is an abiding joy and peace when I have theological confessional truths ingrained in me. Um and but how can what we learn from the confessions and the creed, um, the, the creeds and, you know, these, these other things, how can they be pulled down in, in like, you know, like my daughter sometimes has low self-esteem at school mm-hmm. or um, I don't feel very spiritual today because I didn't read my Bible or mm-hmm. man, I, I love music. That's not quote, quote, Christian, you know, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not bad. They're not saying bad stuff, but I just love mm-hmm. it. What do the, do the confessions or any of these things speak to that? Or do, do they have a very clear function or of just helping me make sure my, my, my theology is straight? I mean, well, yeah, of course. And first, as far as teaching us, uh, you know, the, our, our theology to ensure it's straight, but like, it's like the shorter catechism says that, you know, the word of God principally teaches what we're to believe concerning God and the duties that he requires of us. And that's a pretty expansive answer in the sense that, it's going to teach us who God is, but it's also going to teach us and help us to understand mm. how, how we can use the scriptures and how we can use doctrine in living the Christian life. So that if I am struggling, say, with, um, with uh, self-esteem, then I can remember the truth, you know, that in question 69 of the larger catechism where it talks about our union with Christ, you know, the idea that that we're in union with Christ and that everything that is said of him is now mine and that I am a son of God because I am in the son. Amen. Then I can say, Hey, what a blessing. And I may not be feeling, you know, well with things because of whatever's going on, but I can take shelter in the knowledge of Christ's blessings are mine and that he's given to them to me by his grace or in terms of, you know, engage, you know, living in the world in the sense that, well, you know, can I listen to, to music that, you know, isn't explicitly Christian? And this is where I can, you know, reflect upon the doctrine of creation and say that, hey, God has created everything and he has gifted people with gifts. And so I can appreciate the goodness of God in the creation, uh, even if it's not coming from an explicitly Christian source. So long as I have the scriptures with me to make sure that I'm filtering out whatever things don't belong, assuming, of course, that we're not trying to you know, uh, listen or read or watch things that are explicitly contradictory to the teaching of God's word. That's, that's a different category, you know, but can I sit down and can I appreciate a piece of music and, and revel in the glory of God in the things that he has created and giving human beings creativity? Well, the confessions teach me about those things. Mm. 
talking about the fact, for example, the opening words of the confession, the Westminster Confession talks about the light of nature teaches that there is a God, uh, you know, and that he's to be worshiped and that he governs the world and that he has created everything. Well, if that's available to us by virtue of the light of nature, then as John Calvin would say, I can take, you know, the spectacles of scripture and I can put them on and then I can look at the creation and, and everything that is there and I can appreciate it as something that God himself has, has given to the world and to us as human beings. You know, so I think that those are things that it, it grounds us uh, in, in Christ so that we can then, you know, not only have uh, redemptive hope that we can reassure ourselves with, but we can also have guidance and wisdom uh, for living the Christian life. Well, that was a very compelling response and a I mean, in this interview so far, I, I feel like you've painted a really good picture and it, a, a biblical reasoning and, and all these things to sort of concern ourselves with these. Um, but now I bring up the word concern ourselves with these things. Mm -hmm. um, like my mom, she's probably not going to say, oh, I'm a confessional. You know, I, 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 you know, I adhere to this, you know, this confession or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um are Christians like free to sort of bounce? But let's even just say the Presbyterian ones, if you will. Mm -hmm. Are they sort of free to bounce around in between those? Um, and can they sort of glean from what they like? Or is it like, should they really kind of know each one of these? You know, can can you kind of like, yeah, the, the confessions are great. Or yeah, yeah, I've, I've gleaned some good stuff from there. You know, I don't spend a lot, of, you know, you, you kind of follow what I'm saying to what yeah. level of importance and can you can you sort of be loose with it? Are, are you kind of like in or you're out? Yeah, no, I think you can have the, the first scenario that you describe in the following manner. It's like before I became Presbyterian, so before I was a Sabbatarian, I grew up uh, on the 49ers. And so I was a huge Joe Montana and uh, Steve Young, you know, fan. I love following them. Uh, I can just remember, I, I remember Montana throwing the pass to Dwight Clark in the end zone, touchdown, you know, everybody goes wild, pandemonium. But in my recent years, my, uh, my sons were shocked because they're like, dad, how can you be a Tom Brady fan? <laughs> you know, that's like, that's the, 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 an, you know, the antithesis of the 49ers. And I said, you know, I can have an appreciation for him because look at, I mean, I'm an older guy. <laughs> Look at what this old guy is doing. I mean, this is, you, you just have to stand back and think, holy smokes, this guy's accomplishing some amazing things. Now, that being said, I only follow the games, you know, uh, on days other than Sundays, you know, to try to, you know, keep the Sabbath in that respect. But I'm just amazed. So uh, my, my kids were saying, Dad, what do you want for Christmas? And I said, get me a Tom Brady jersey. And they're like, what? Are you kidding me? So I can have an appreciation for what they do. And so the same can be said. Uh, you know, you can, we can pull this analogy over and I can say that, um, you know, my, my primary doctrinal standards are the Westminster standards, so the catechisms and the confession, and particularly because I'm a minister, I do my best to study those documents and to know those documents exceptionally well, or at least that's what I strive for. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that I can't have an appreciation and glean lots of truth and benefit from all of these other confessional documents so that at the church where I'm presently preaching on a regular basis, because the pastor is undergoing some, some health challenges and he cannot preach, uh, they use, uh, they're using the Heidelberg Catechism, you know, uh, one question a week in morning worship. Uh, there's been in times in the past where my family and I have used Luther's small catechism uh, for family devotions. 
You know, so there's a sense in which if you know what your convictions are, you can, in a sense, make the confessional world your playground and you can enjoy all kinds of stuff and benefit from from the wisdom that God has given and the insights and the skills and the particular phraseology. While I love the shorter catechism, I'm especially endeared to the pastoral warm tones of the Heidelberg catechism. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful catechism. Mm -hmm. And so I would encourage people to, you know, to, to, to explore uh, and to, to, to learn from some of the, the church's greatest documents that have been produced. So good. So good, Dr. Fesco. Um, I mean, time's running out, mm-hmm. but there's three questions I really wanted to ask you. If you, okay. could, you could just one line, one liner back okay. if you want. Um, okay. But um, so, so here's the first, and again, you could just one liner if you want, that's fine. Sure, um, the first of the three, it seems that the Westminster standards kind of are in heavier rotation than the three forms of unity. Well, mm-hmm. At least from what I could tell. Why is that? I think that because the continental reformed churches, at least in the West, or at least in the United States, I think they're, in one sense, numerically smaller. Uh, so they perhaps get less mm. attention. Uh, mm. Whereas, at least numerically speaking, the Westminster standards historically have been the doctrinal standards of, of most, uh, most uh, uh, you know, Presbyterian churches. Uh, a second factor is that the three forms of unity uh, were written in other languages, uh, either in Latin or in uh, French or in Dutch. Um, And so they've required at least initially somebody to translate them into English, whereas the Westminster standards have always been written in English. There are benefits and drawbacks, believe it or not, to both. Uh, But um, yeah, so I think that that's, you know, it's just, Presbyterians, by virtue of greater presence and number here, and at least in this country, uh, you know, have given the Westminster standards greater, greater, a greater profile and thus greater familiarity among most folks. Awesome. Thank you. So, mm-hmm. it, like, for those who are confessional, it seems that sort of many of us confessional folks sort of hang our hats on these confessions and the documents, as well as the creeds. But, you know, the, the catechisms and confessions are pretty exhaustive, and they're only about, say, 500 years old. And so to outsiders, we can't blame them for looking at us and saying, these guys are, um, they're a subcult. This is like you said, there's a subculture and their Christianity is about 500 years old. And then at that point, the confessional guys say, no, we bring in the language from here and, you know, and we're down with the creeds. But what is the response to that? Like, because we say, you know, yeah, what's the response to that? Yeah, you know, I would say that what we're trying to do through our confessions is essentially to echo and to trace the lines of the teaching of Scripture. And so that what we do is as we look back to, the, say, the tradition of Westminster, which is whatever the math is, four or five hundred years on that. It's, it's not quite five hundred, but somewhere around four, <coughs> excuse me, um, is that we're doing our best to just simply summarize uh, what has been said in the Scriptures because you know, the scriptures, it's a pretty big book, you know, 66 books, I forget, I think it's maybe a million words. Uh, and so we want to make sure that can we summarize what this book says in this relatively short document. Now, that being said, we always want to do our best to make those confessional documents as, as accessible as possible, mm-hmm. as also, you know, to, to newcomers, as well as to teach them to the, to, to the people that come in so that we disciple them so that they know that, hey, 
hey, look at this answer. Do you see this answer in question two when it's talking about the attributes of God? It's simply just rehearsing a series of words that occur in the scriptures. So I would say that they're not just 500 years old. In some cases, there are phrases and statements that are thousands of years old because they're coming to us from the Old Testament, from the New Testament. And so, you know, what we have to do in each age is we have to appropriate the truth. And uh, as we appropriate the truth, then we pass it on to, to future generations. And so that, that's, I think, the way that I would, I would respond to that question. Thank you for politely, how you politely glossed over my hundred year um, blunder. You did that so easily. <laughs> I did that before, I think, because it was like a hundred years ago this year that Abraham Kuyper died. And I think I said 200 yeah. years and the guy was no, like, no worries. what's a what's hundred years between friends, you said. That's, that's <laughs> what I say, yeah. A hundred, you know, no biggie. It's all, it's all good. So doctrinal issues, theological issues are timeless, right? you know, justification, faith alone, these are, and there's a clear need for those to be set in stone. Mm -hmm. um, and we see them in the, the confessions, the creeds. However, we're reformed and always reforming. And mm -hmm. so if I remember correctly, didn't they like meet every few years ago to kind of update and, you know, like the actual, like the language? Um, and with the exception of like the New City Catechism, shouldn't we be kind of updating them and i know that's scary it's like well who would do it who's gonna be like you know i know our scott clark is always like let's do it but mm -hmm. nothing's happening so there is a new set of issues and and ways to contextualize these so that's sort of my final question for you like as far as would it be helpful to update maybe not even update certain things but maybe add a few things mm -hmm. or yeah yeah, I mean, there's certainly a case for that in the sense that, you know, I forget what the statistics are for the Reformation, but it, it my statistics are probably off here. But I think that during the Reformation, they may have been writing catechisms as some and, and confessional documents at something like it may be three or more a year, so that it was something like thirty a decade. You know, that they that they were just <laughs> continually generating these documents. And that more or less into the present contemporary situ, you know, place in which we find ourselves, you know, yeah, it's 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 now it's it's come down to a, a drip of the faucet rather than a fire hose of documents coming out. Um, so is it time? I think it could be time. But on the other hand, you know, I would say, you know, two two things that I would want to keep in mind for all of that. Jay Gresson Machen back in um, in the 1920s said that. You know, we don't live in a, in a confession or creed-making age. And so there's a sense in which the, 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 the corporate body of the church would really have to bone up. We would really have to practice and we would have to study because there are so many places in these documents. And I point out a couple of them in the book where there's some really carefully nuanced passages that you know, uh, create some doctrinal room so that there can be a diversified orthodoxy, and so that we don't lock ourselves into one 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 position, uh, and we allow some freedom within the bounds of, of of truth. But that being said, if we don't uh, if we don't understand those documents well, then we could potentially be creating problems for ourselves because we don't write a good document, we end up writing a poorly written document. And so in that vein, if you look at the history of confession writings, uh, especially, say, in the 17th century, they were always pulling phrases from earlier documents. Mm. 
There are phrases that come out of the 39 articles. There are phrases that come out of the Irish articles in 1615. There are phrases that come out of Nicaea that come out of Chalcedon. And so that's how we would, would that would be a way to operate is that you're not so much writing a document from scratch, uh, but you're writing a document working from the past, joining hands with the tradition to update, you know, whatever areas we, we think we may need to update or, uh, you know, amend. So say, for example, on issues such as like, you know, the whole gender debate, you know, issues that have come up in our broader culture, that is probably an issue that our theological forefathers would never, ever have imagined. I mean, it just would never have been on their radar. So is there something to be said to where we might need to update a phrase or two here or there in certain documents to account for that? Because as, 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 as somebody who used to be an administrator at a seminary, I had to explain to certain people uh, that were coming from the outside, say lawyers and what have you, this is the phrase by which we would understand that rejects this particular claim of the unbelieving culture, but it wouldn't be explicit, you know? So, you know, there is a, you know, there is a case to be made that we probably should do on that, but only after preparing. And when I say preparing, it might be a time where we're having to prepare um, a group of theologians and what have you for 10, 20 years to get ready so that we could then undertake that, that process because I'm more about getting it right rather than rushing it and thrusting a document upon the church that ends up creating more problems than it actually solves, where the cure is worse than the disease. I know you said like a lot of people, like there was a time where there's rapid fire stuff coming out. I think Spurgeon even made one. It seemed like every gentleman's hobby was to make one perhaps. <laughs> would, you, would you rebuke me if I say I was steeped? I knew, I knew by heart, mm -hmm. um, you know, the three forms of unity. And if I, and if I, on my own and with um, my pastor and my three best friends who all know them well, say, mm -hmm. say, and, and I wanted to enrich my children and equip them. And I mm -hmm. maybe updated a few things with, with everyone else. And we all agreed there, you know, they still remain in the bounds of Christian. And I added a few things for day-to-day -day living, as well as to, mm -hmm. to address some issues. Would mm -hmm. you rebuke me to my face and think that's a bad idea? No, no. I mean, I would say that, you know, so what you're doing there, you know, um, Heinrich Bullinger wrote the uh, Second Helvetic Confession in 1561, and he was Zwingli's successor in Zurich. And he wrote a personal confession of faith. That personal confession of faith was the Second Helvetic Confession. He passed it to a colleague. Wow. He says, what do you think of this? He says, this is outstanding. We need to distribute this and we need to get it out to other people. And before you know it, it was one of, you know, Europe's most used confessions of faith for the better part of a generation mm. or longer. Uh, and as I said earlier, it's still being used today by the Hungarian Reformed Church. And so I would say that that's a great exercise to go through because it's, it's the way that we as individuals can personally appropriate the truth. So long as we just understand that we're not intending this to say, now everybody else around me has to adopt this as their own. You know, I would say that if you want to take that, do that, that's, that's highly encouraged. But then if you want it to go broader, well, then take the next step, which would be, hey, let's start getting others involved in the process to where maybe we can get some groundswell or a snowball effect that maybe this would eventually grow into something much larger. But on a, on a small scale like that, I think it's fantastic. And my kids can tell you sometimes, say with the children's catechism, 
I'll scratch a word out <laughs> and I'll write a different one in there, uh, you know, or I'll have a sidebar and say, hey, you know, we want to, you know, understand this or that. So I, I would think that that's, that's a fantastic exercise to go through. So, you know, keep up the good work. So you didn't, you wouldn't rebuke me. For, you didn't rebuke me from being off a hundred years. You didn't, you wouldn't rebuke me for that. And you didn't rebuke me because you like how I sque squeezed in another final question. I said three. Okay. So the book, <laughs> the needs for creeds today, confessional mm -hmm. faith in a faithless age. I mean, and it's, I mean, it's just, it's a short book, super helpful. You cover biblical arguments for the confessions, reformed mm -hmm. confessions, 1500 to 1700 causes mm -hmm. of deconfessionalization, benefits of confessions and confessions and piety. Super good. They could also go to jvfesco.com. So jvfesco.com. A lot of good stuff there, even a series on it. Um, and like I said, we're giving away two copies. So go to our uh, social media. Thank you for this time. You, you made a slam dunk compelling case. And thanks for being a nice confessional guy. Maybe I was, I was scared and I shouldn't have been. <laughs> Well, you know, from a distance, some confessional types can look a little bit scary, but, you know, once you get to know some of us, you realize, hey, they're regular guys too. So I'm glad to be on with you and hope that uh, what we've put together here will be uh, edifying for your listeners. Thank you so much. You got any books coming up or anything we keep our eyes peeled for? You know, um, I just submitted one to a publisher a couple of, a couple, maybe a month or so ago on the doctrine of the covenant of works. I just had one on the history of the covenant of works come out, but this is on the doctrine. And so God willing, maybe sometime around this time uh, next year in 2021, you'll see that come out. So I'm pretty excited about that one. It's, uh, I, I had a lot of fun writing it. So hopefully it too will be edifying for, for the church. It's good to talk to another father. And, and, uh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, thanks so much for having me on and uh, blessings to you and to yours. We came for salvation. We came for family, we came for all that's good, that's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad, we came to cheer the sad.